Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Small Talk. I'm your host, Greg Littlebitty. Kylan Wolf is on the cutting edge of the third wave of the tiny house movement. We're visiting her in her new dwelling place today. Come on in, Greg. Come on in where? Careful, don't step on the cat. I don't see a cat. It's one of those new micro cats. I adopted her in Berkeley. Maybe if I put my reading glasses on. Most people need a magnifying glass. So the idea for this house came when I was living in my last tiny house, which was 120 square feet. And, you know, one day I woke up and I said, what do I need all this space for? Most people would say that's not much space. It was ridiculous. I mean, I have everything I need right here. Are you hungry? I made some guacamole. Is it that tiny green speck there? Yep, help yourself. Over here are my books, Tiny Alice, Stuart Little, Little Women. Do you have plumbing? Mm-hmm. Well, it's just this eyedropper. I squeeze really hard to take a shower. But if I want to heat up a pot of mini corn on the cob, just one drop. I don't, I don't see how you can fit in this house. I'm downsizing. You mean getting rid of stuff? No, no, I'm actually shrinking myself. Every day, I get wet and tumble in the dryer on high heat. I'm taking human reverse growth hormone. My goal is two inches. That's a radical change, to lose two inches of your height in such a short time. No, no, I want to be two inches tall. My carbon footprint is going to be a pinhead. I want to take up mouseback riding. Come with me, Greg. Be a teeny weeny. The planet is no longer able to sustain huge, lumbering, resource-gobbling life forms like you. You're basically an apatosaurus wearing dockers. Actually, these are... You people will be extinct, okay? But we teeny weenies will live on. Come on, man. Take a chance. They say once you've had itsy bitsy, you never go back. You know what I mean? I really can't. Well, the rest of you, join us on a trip through the world of tiny houses, like that big old 120 square foot pile where I used to live. And now he just wants to dye it down into that yellow polka dot bikini he wore in dental school. Colin McEnroe. It, it fit me then. I don't know what happened. But all right, we are going to talk today about the tiny house movement. And this may be something that was not on your radar screen, I confess. Although I was sort of, you know, generally aware of it in kind of an Utney reader kind of way. I didn't realize how big it was. Uh, I guess that's sort of a contradiction that it's a big tiny house movement. Um, it does remind me, before we get into the guests, I have to say, uh, it, do, it did call to mind uh, growing up. A million years ago, there was this comic strip called The Teeny Weenies, and it really was about these people who I, I'm sure I'm one of the eight living human beings who remembers this. I mean, I looked it up today, and it does it did exist. I didn't hallucinate it, and there are archives at the University of Wisconsin or something. But anyway, it was all about these people who were they were about two inches tall, and they lived they lived this life of of scale basically, and it was actually really quite charming. Uh, anyway, and I'm sure it was like politically really incorrect. I shouldn't go back and read it. Anyway, we're not talking about that today. We are talking about um, this unusual movement of people who are, in fact, um, leaving the life that most of us live that involve 
houses of X thousand square feet or apartments of comparable size or at least, you know, somewhere around there uh, and, and living in much, much smaller spaces. Uh, you're going to meet uh, four different people uh, with uh, different perspectives and different missions uh, connected to this. Um, I think it's uh, apt and meet and right that we begin with Tammy Strobel. She's a photographer, teacher and author of You Can Buy Happiness and it's cheap and runs RowdyKittens.com where she talks about living simply in her tiny house in Northern California, although as we will discover in our conversation. It hasn't always been in Northern California. It goes, it goes places, which is one of the things this thing does, this whole movement does. So Tammy Strobel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, before we even talk about this house and, and what it is, um, uh, I think we should begin maybe almost at the personal level, because my sense sure. in, in watching the, the, uh, the sort of mini documentary about you uh, and reading about you is that, that it, this isn't just about having a smaller house, right? This begins kind of with a discontent that you had about your middle class plight, as I think uh, you call it in the documentary. Uh, say more about that. Sure. Well, basically, I was super unhappy, depressed, and this was probably 2007-ish, and um, I knew I was very privileged because I had a great job, a nice apartment, wonderful husband, but I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on with me. So um, my husband, Logan, suggested, hey, why don't we try simplifying and uh, seeing how that makes us feel maybe that will help us pay off debt be a little more happier and just more at ease with where we are in the world so that's kind of how it all started and I do have to say I was not keen on living simply in the beginning I didn't want anything to do with it <laughs> and and so um this did lead you to um this very very small house how big is the house the house is 128 square feet, and it's built on a utility trailer that's 16 feet long, 8 feet wide, and the actual house is about 13 feet tall. And I'm watching the documentary, there's this person named Kristen Dirksen who just has made just insane numbers uh, of sort of small documentaries and one big documentary uh, about the people of the tiny houses. Uh, um, watching the documentary about you, this is a very lovely place that you're in. I mean, this it, we wouldn't want anybody to think that it, it's... You know, it looks anything like, I don't even know what the mental picture they might be conjuring up, but there's a lot of kind of natural wood and, and lots of windows, right? You have like something like 10 windows in this you know, very small space. Yeah, I mean, we think it's a beautiful little house, and it kind of looks like a cabin you might find in the woods, like if you're going to go on a retreat, just something really cozy, and we really designed it so that the space would feel open. And it's funny because when we have guests over, they always say, you know, I know this house is really small, but it feels really big. And I think that's because we have so many windows in the space. Um, some of that is also you just have had to make a lot of decisions uh, about what you're going to get rid of and, and how you're going to live. Uh, is, is there a way that you can describe the culling that had to go on, the downsizing that had to go on so that you can fit into this tiny house? Sure. Well, we it took us quite a while. We started getting rid of stuff in probably 2007, 2008-ish, and we didn't move into our little house until October of 2011. So, we slowly over the years shrunk our living spaces and, and moved into smaller and smaller apartments, shedded more and more stuff, and 
eventually moved into the house. So it definitely took time, but it's been a fun adventure. Um, one of the things that becomes clear, I think, watching uh, you and watching some of the other people who do this is uh, I think some of the people listening right now imagine their own lives and the way they live and the way they spend a typical day and transfer all of that to this tiny little space, a space that's radically different, uh, you know, but the, than the space that they live in. Um, one of the things that becomes clear is that you do live differently, right? If you feel cramped, you go outside. You probably are outside more than most people. Uh, if you want a shower, you might actually, at least at one point, go to the gym to get the shower or use some of these other call, so-called third spaces, right? If you're if the working space where you're uh, your computer is, is a little bit too cramped on a particular day or you don't feel like standing up at it, you go to a Starbucks or someplace that has Wi-Fi, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think, at least for me, that's one of the beauties of living small is that, like, I love being outside and going on hikes. And so if I feel cramped in the house, I go <laughs> into nature. And, you know, we've got a great outdoor shower, for example, now in our, our current situation and um, just you know, we utilize what's in our community, like libraries, coffee shops, and um, other community resources as well. Um, uh, I think uh, another part of this is it's not just the small house. It's this notion and that notion of of the commons, common space that you're using when you're not using your small house, and also a sense of sharing, too. I don't know if you have a car right now, but at one point I know you didn't have a car. You were kind of sharing car resources with other people. Yeah, we were car-free for about five years, and we we live in a really rural area now, and so we have one car that um, my husband and I share, and um, it's just more challenging to do car sharing when you're, you know, 15 miles from town, but if you're in a city like Portland, you know, there are resources like Zipcar or Smart Cars that you can use that are, are pretty fantastic. So you went from kind of mortgage and consumer debt to no debt. You went from a complicated life to a simpler one. You went from a life where you basically were not very happy. You described yourself as having put on weight, having just sort of not really quite understanding why you were living the way you were living and not quite understanding why you weren't happier, uh, to this life that's simpler, presumably happier, not without its challenges, but, but a happier, simpler life. Is that what it's all about, or are you trying also to make some kind of ethical point about how people live? Well, for me, I definitely just in the beginning wanted to be happier. And um, I think living simply really looks different for each person. Like I wish there was a one size fits all approach. It would be easier that way, but there isn't. And so I think it's really important for people to be mindful of their choices, whether that's going out to the store and buying something new or how they spend their time. And so um, I guess for me, that's really what it's all about is being mindful about how you live your life because you only get one shot, you know, so I think it's important to use your time well. Um, we're going to add to the conversation Derek Diedrichson. He is a Connecticut native and the author of Humble Homes, Simple Shacks. He blogs at RelaxShacks.com. He specializes in building habitats with free and found materials. He um, tours around the country uh, doing workshops and, and, and touring other people's experiments in, in smaller living. Um, Derek Diedrichson, one thing that I don't know, and, and maybe you do, may, you might be the person with the best shot at this, 
How how pervasive is this movement? I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to quantify it or, you know, is it 100 people? Is it 1,000 people? Is it 10,000 people? How many people make up the movement that we're talking about right now? I mean, if, if judging by any of the, the boards and forums you'd see online, especially on Facebook or just blogs in general, um, it's pretty massive. As to how many people actually live in tiny houses right now, the number is growing. I can't give you an exact number. I would say we're approaching the thousands, thousands, but some of them are living clandestinely, keep in mind, um, you know, either circumventing codes or in an area where a tiny house is, you know, like 120 square feet is allowed. Some of these people don't want to be known, don't blog, uh, don't want their whereabouts known. So it's, it's really hard to say, but it's growing. It's huge. I mean, there's a TV show out now. I'm actually on the DL hosting one. We've already filmed coming up. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's just snowballing. It does. It actually, we, I think we've got somebody on a hold right now on the line right now who, who, I mean, I think there's sort of, there are waves of this, and I think there's, we've got a caller right now, and I should say our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, a caller who isn't in a tiny house yet, but is on a track to be in one, in other words, okay. to set that as our goal. So we'll get to that in just a second. So, um, uh, so Derek, um, I, I'm going to ask Tammy about this as well, but I'll start with you. Sure. Tammy's house is on wheels. Uh, that's not unusual. It's not an accident. There's a reason reason why a lot of these houses are on wheels. Maybe you can explain that. Yeah, well, my particular house is actually on a hovercraft, so I can move it from <laughs> one you know, continent to the other very easily. No, no, a lot of them are on wheels uh, because uh, once upon a time it was discovered in, in certain counties that people were allowed to, and this is one of the reasons, allowed to camp on their property but not live in a house that was X amount of square feet, you know, such a minimal size. Um, they found out if I'm allowed to camp or have an RV, why not build a tiny house on wheels, thus classifying it as mobile, not permanent, an RV, and I could, you know, at that point in time, get away with it. Certain areas in the U.S. now are coming around and actually full-out allowing tiny dwellings, you know, of such diminutive size. Um, but, you know, in other areas, people are having a hard time with it. And, uh, I mean, there's, for many reasons, a lot of it comes down to taxation dollars and, uh, you know, mortgages, real estate flipping, those kind of things. I mean, that, we could go on, on and on for a half hour about that, but um, I think you're seeing more and more as people strive towards an allowance of these tiny houses, which is awesome. Yeah. Now, Tammy Strobel, this is something I did not understand until we got into the, the weeds of this show a little bit. Um, there are, in most places, rules about not what size your house has to be so much as what size one individual room of your house has to be. There are a lot of places that have rules that say that an individual room has to be as big as, in fact, the entire Strobel house is, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> So, I mean, I think it's really important for folks who are considering, you know, living in a tiny house, whether it's on wheels or not, to check in with their planning department, their county, city guidelines, because um, rules vary um, depending on where you are in the world. And so for us right now, we're legal where we're parked. (laughs) Um, But that's not the case. Like, we had some issues when we were in the city of Chico, Um, with zoning, and we ended up making the decision to leave. So it can be a complex with tiny houses. But for us, we really love the idea of being mobile because we thought, well, this is perfect because when we move, we can bring the house with us. So that was definitely an appeal. 
And you've done this, right? You've done this sometimes because of family emergencies, sometimes for other reasons, because of job changes. You've gone from Sebastopol, California, to Oregon, to I don't know. How many places has your house alighted so far? Um, Well, we started out in Portland, Oregon, and since then we've lived in Red Bluff, California, Chico, and now we live in Siskiyou County near Wairika, California. So we've been kind of all over (laughs) Northern California. It's been kind of an adventure for sure. So Derek Diedrichson, this isn't, you know, as I sort of said to Tammy at the beginning, this really isn't just about the size of people's houses. This movement is more complex than that, I sense. This is about really in some ways a real rejection of the way a lot of us have lived American lives, which, mean, yeah, it does mean that you start out in a starter home and you get a bigger home and maybe you get a bigger home than that. And it's one of the ways that you sort of measure your progress through life. And then you get too old for the bigger home. You start downsizing, you get a smaller home so you can take care of it as you age. But meanwhile, you're also, as that's happening, uh, starting out with some crappy stuff from Ikea. Not that Ikea has crappy <laughs> stuff. You start out with some stuff from there and then you Ikea kind of... Ikea is not one of your sponsors. No, apparently the, not. No, no it's wonder- Ikea has wonderful stuff. Wonderful. <laughs> So, um, no, you have you start out with some kind of starter furniture and then you think, oh, I want to get something new. I want to get a different thing. And it's always something new and something better. That's pretty much the American way. Um, The the movement that you're talking about, it isn't just about smaller houses made of more natural materials. It's really about everything. I mean, I'm looking at your blog on Relax Shacks and it's, you know, maybe there's like a, a solar shower that gives you a very small but but satisfying shower. Maybe there's a lamp that you figured out how to make out of repurposed materials, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as Tammy stated, a lot of it's about simplifying, but also taking control of one's lives. You know, you know, you're, you're force-fed this notion that you need the 17 Maseratis in the 12-car garage. Well, I guess a 17-car garage um, to be successful and look successful in the eyes of others. But jobs don't pay what they used to. Everyone seems to work two, three jobs these days to make ends meet, to pay for their iPhones and who knows what else. They're fancy shoes and all that, but uh, I go around barefoot, no. <laughs> but um, I think a lot of people, you know, especially coming out of college, young people are realizing, like, I don't want to start off, I'm already in enough debt because of college. If I go and buy that house, which I'm supposed to do, that big old McMansion or regular size house, now I'm more in debt. So how can I nip this problem in the bud? What if I started small, built something that's mobile? Um, geographically, it's, with its resale value, you don't have to just sell it in one town. You could deliver it if you ever got sick of the thing and wanted to sell it elsewhere. Um, something that could be built quickly, built cheaply, is efficient when it comes to heat, maintaining it. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So I think it's really uh, a time saver, money saver, and, and gives a lot of hope to uh, well, both young and old alike. So, Tammy Strobel, now that you've done this, you've got your tiny house in, 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 in as many ways as possible, in ways that Derek is kind of alluding to. You've simplified your carbon footprint and your energy costs, and you're more in touch with the outside. Uh, you're much more likely to move out into third spaces and commune with your fellow human beings, but you also have a space that you love and enjoy. So your life is basically perfect, right? You don't have any, you have no problems, correct? Oh, no. (laughs) You know, I just wrote uh, an essay about kind of that idea in general. You know, these houses are beautiful. I'm so grateful for my life and my family and friends, but my life isn't perfect. I still have problems, anxieties, worries. But I think the beauty of living simply is 
um, at least for me, is to really be there for my loved ones. And when my dad got sick in uh, January of 2012, I was able to help take care of him as he died. And that is something that I couldn't have done had I still been in debt in the work spend cycle and all that stuff. And so for me, it's really like shifting the priorities, focusing on what matters. And, and that really has to do with my core relationships. All right. Um, I'm going to just pop you on hold for a second so we can all hear these callers. We've got uh, some people calling in here. Um, let's uh, quick, fr- quickly first talk to Elizabeth, who I think is calling in from Indiana. Um, do I have it right, Elizabeth? Are you one of the people kind of trying to make this transition right now? Yeah. Hi, Colin. I, I am. I'm in the midst of this transition. I'm um, currently living at um, an eco-village here called Living Roots in French Lake, Indiana, So I uh, moved from Connecticut just a week ago, so I'm new here um, at the Eco Village. And here at the Eco Village, we are um, having the opportunity to build small structures, um, some possibly on wheels. Right now we have some on foundations, but um, really being conscious about our resources and um, the way in which we're interacting with the earth. So um, I don't have my own tiny home on wheels yet, but I'm I'm actually living in a probably 120-square-foot trailer on wheels here on the property just to kind of prepare for my transition. Um, I am, um, I have an Indiegogo campaign running called Tiny Living Big Thinking at the moment, which I launched, and it's, take, it's taken a while to kind of just get the message out to educate people and start creating this awareness. People often aren't even aware that they're in um, this cycle, this vicious cycle of housing and lacking access to safe and affordable housing. So, um, and I'm really looking at it from the perspective of health, how um, the choices we make surrounding our, our housing really impacts our health. So, All right. And so uh, where do you see yourself three years from now? I assume you see yourself living in one of these tiny houses, probably a tiny house on wheels. Where is that house in your mind in three years? Sure. Um, well, right now, as a lot of the other callers were saying, um, zoning is kind of dictating um, many, many factors in, in the tiny house movement. Um, right now, I'm in a place where um, I have access to larger cities, but there aren't zoning regulations. So, in fact, we are kind of, um, we're, we're surrounded by many Amish counties here. And, and so the building codes and regulations are much more lenient. Um, so we're actually able to kind of bypass all of that, as Tammy was saying, as far as, you know, kind of her situation where she, where she is now. In Connecticut, things are slightly different, and I've kind of been interviewing um, local zoning officials, and there, there definitely are are some some problems that people may encounter, but I really encourage people who are interested in building small homes just to form relationships with um, their zoning officials and their planning departments. And um, a lot of it is just people just don't know. Um, so when they're fearful of what they don't know, um, and but when you start sharing this information with people and letting them know that they're are other reasons even, you know, environmental, financial, economical. Um, you never know. Your, your zoning commission or your planning guy might be the next one to build a tiny home with you. All right. Um, and by the way, if you need some power for your tiny home, just go over to Larry Bird's house and uh, plug in. Doesn't Larry Bird live in French Lick, Indiana? I think he does. Uh, all right. So uh, that was uh, so Derek Diedrichson, you're listening to all this. I assume this is all completely familiar to you. I mean, what oh, she's yeah. talking about and this uh, notion of an eco village and uh, many of our listeners feel like strangers in a strange land. I'm assuming you don't. 
I don't live in an eco village. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm assuming that this this is oh, not no, no, strange no. Yeah, stuff. I'm very familiar with this. There's a bunch of them out there too. Dancing Rabbit Eco Village is one up near uh, kind of Oregon. Uh, they're, they're all over the place, and I, I think it's great for shared resources, especially. All right, and we should say there is a tiny house Facebook uh, group for Connecticut tiny house. Uh, aspirants, I guess would be the right way to say it. So Tiny House Connecticut on Facebook, check that out. Also, you should know, if you're listening right now and all of this kind of makes sense to you or seems like it might, that there's going to be, uh, speaking of eco-villages, a temporary eco-village from Friday, September 19th through Sunday, September 21st uh, in Somerville, Massachusetts. Something called Miranda's Hearth and the Somerville Arts Council are going to do a festival celebrating DIY, environmentally friendly and small. Small. That would be tiny or tiny-ish uh, there's, living. There's also down, if I can quick mention, sure. down in Austin, Texas, near that area, they're having a huge workshop with some of like, the bigger speakers or, or names in the movement uh, in October as well. In Luling, Texas, outside of Austin, it's like a three-day festival, too, which is going to be pretty stellar. You know, before we go to break, I'm just going to um, pop uh, Tammy back online here for a second because I see a question that really ought to be asked, uh, and I may not be able to get John on uh, line in the time that I've got here. But um, but one caller does want to know, um, what about kids? You guys don't have kids, but how, how would children in your mind, at least you didn't at the time of the documentary, uh, how would children in your mind fit into this life model you're working on? Um, I actually do have kids. Oh, okay. Well, let me start with Tammy first, Derek, yeah. and then, then I'll I'll hear from you. Uh, go ahead, Tammy. Um, well, Logan and I aren't planning on having children. Uh, we're aunts and uncles to many, and uh, we love kids but don't want our own. And so personally, I don't know if I would want to live in a super tiny house with children, but people do. Um, in my book, I profiled uh, families who live in small spaces with kids and um, you know, I think it's important to point out, too, that, uh, you know, beyond the U.S., people live in very tiny spaces um, most of the time with kids. So, you know, housing and the type of housing you live in and get to choose is really a privilege that um, a lot of us are granted with in the U.S. Right. That's a great point. Even if you go to Europe, um, our, our idea of tiny is not uh, necessarily another country's idea of, of tiny. Derek, what were you going to say about having kids? Yeah, no, I Michigan? have kids. I mean, I, I don't live in a tiny house uh, to the extent that Tammy and Logan do. I live in the Boston area where, where it's really tough to build anything tiny. I build and design a lot of tiny houses for people. My house is in the upper sevens to 800. I got two kids big fat dog, recording studio, workshop, all within that square footage. So my house is comparatively the, I guess, the mansion, you could say. But the U.S. average now is, hovers around 2,400 square feet, so I'm about a, a third of that. Um, but I have kids, and um, even within a house of this size, it gets challenging. But um, you, you teach them to appreciate the outdoors. All my son ever wants to do and my daughter is work on their treehouse out in the yard, <laughs> which they're going to do in about 10 minutes after this interview when I supervise them. So, um <laughs> It's, it's doable in a tiny house, too. You just have to really plan and kind of delineate and figure out how to make it work space-wise. Or if you live in a climate where it happens to be warmer and you can take advantage of the outdoors, you're at an advantage uh, right there. Actually, having your dad, Derek Diedrichson, help you with your treehouse is a little bit... No, I'm like, not helping him. He actually wants nothing to do with my building. He wants okay. to do it all himself, which that, is awesome, because his house is like this Mad Max, Beyond <laughs> Thunderdome tower of scraps of scraps, and it looks so cool. All right. I was going to say, that's like having your dad, Albert Einstein, help you with your physics homework. Yeah, but, um, yeah Vonnegut, do your English paper. 
Right. So um, let me just grab uh, one more call here. Uh, and that before we go to break here, that's uh, Louise uh, in Southbury. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. Hey. Hey, what's on your mind, Louise? Um, I just want to call and say we live in Connecticut and we're building a tiny house right now. And so um, one gets the feeling that that's a difficult thing to do in Connecticut because of the rules and because of where this is incredibly straight-laced, uh, unthoughtful, unimaginative, non-Northern California society. So are you finding it possible to do? Yeah, it's kind of a little difficult. We had some troubles with the DMV because we wanted to register our trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of put this on hold for now, trying to figure out what to do. Um, but certainly there's some difficulty to build a tiny house, live in a tiny house, because the East Coast is more strict than the West Coast, for sure. All right. So um, one thing you might want to do, actually, is go to that thing in Somerville. You may uh, get some interesting ideas. Uh, we'll try to post some information about that uh, at WNPR.org. We've got to move on to our next segment here. Um, we've had a great uh, visit with these guests. You're going to be meeting more guests as we go. Uh, if you have questions, comments about tiny houses, 860-275-7266. You may send us little teeny tiny tweets, really maybe only four characters, not 140, at WNPR, Colin. I feel like we should do a promo about what our show team never tires of doing. What do we never tire of doing? Not the richness of life. I don't think we do that. Uh, we'll have to think about that. We'll have a meeting later to discuss what we never tire of doing. Um, all right. So um, we're going to continue to talk about this tiny house movement. Uh, we're going to get tinier um, and and less I don't know what else to say, how exactly, less Tony in some ways, because we've been talking uh, in many respects about these tiny houses that are beautifully designed, built from natural materials, built from architectural designs in many cases. Now we're going to get into the world of repurposing and not even necessarily upscale repurposing. We're going to talk about, in fact, using a dumpster uh, as a house. Uh, Greg Klein joins us right now. He's an artist and a builder of a dumpster home uh, and a shipping container community in New York. He's also building homes or shelters or structures for the homeless out of illegally dumped garbage, which he's um, repurposing in, in Oakland, California. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So um, uh, you've told this story many times before, but but maybe we should start with the dumpster. Uh, this was um, something that you were doing, I guess, sort of partly as an artistic statement and also kind of a, as a practical experiment, right? Yeah. I mean, I was, at the time, I'd done a lot of building with homes, traditional homes, big warehouses, things like that. And then I was building some shipping container homes. So I was just looking around the landscape of, hey, what are some other items in our society, these everyday objects that maybe I could turn into a home? And while I was working on two stories up on the shipping container home, pretty much at the same time I see a garbage truck pick up a six-yard dumpster, you know, the forks go in it, lifts it overhead, dumps all the contents out, and sets the dumpster down. And at that moment I said, hey, I'm going to make a home out of a dumpster. Perfect shape, got a pitched roof. You park that thing anywhere in a city, and no one's going to bat an eye. What city were you in when this uh, inspiration? Uh, I was in Oakland, San Francisco. Yeah, and and so um, one might think, uh, a person listening might think, well, that would be a pretty easy goal to attain, obtain. But you actually sort of first, you actually had to accumulate enough money to be able to buy an actual dumpster, right? Yeah, I mean, at first I thought maybe I'll just use, get a used dumpster for cheap, <laughs> but uh, you know, once they're used, they get they get a little gross. And uh, you don't really want to work with them. So I bought a new dumpster for roughly about $1,000. 
And then I wanted to put everything that a regular home has in that, as far as the shower, a uh, full kitchen, a toilet. Uh, you know, I got a bolt-on barbecue. And then, you know, I wanted to make it a little nice. So I went with a granite countertop, a hardwood floor, uh, you know, windows that roll up. I wanted to maintain the stealthiness. So if I roll down the windows, the kind of the top, unbolt everything from the outside, it looks just like a commercial dumpster. Or I could bolt everything on and kind of have it transform and pop out uh, into a luxury home. And and was this dumpster ever your primary residence, or was it a little bit more uh, this experiment you were doing? Um, well, now I've been living in it for the last three months now. It's here. I'm in Brooklyn now. It's here in New York. So it's kind of my East Coast home in the summers. I come out here to work on some projects, and when I do that, I live in my dumpster. A pied à terre. Get it there, yeah, six feet by six feet, six cubic yards, um, and with a little rooftop deck. Now, there's some way in which, I mean, obviously you're really doing something very interesting here. You're repurposing uh, a familiar item, a dumpster. You're using it in a very novel way, and you're making also a statement about how, how little space you really do need in which to live uh, a reasonably comfortable life and one with some of the appurtenances uh, of even luxury, like granite countertops and things like that. Right. But there... There's a little bit more of a statement going on there, too. I mean, this really is, I sense anyway, a statement about how people live, what they project status onto, and, and, and why, sure. people, why people accumulate money in order to have a certain kind of life, right? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, if you look at a dumpster, what is that? It's a receptacle for everything you don't want, you don't want to get rid of, you, want to, you know, all the gross stuff you want out of your life, you put into it. I thought, hey, if I take this same object that kind of has this disgusted the aura about it and make it real nice you know what uh what's going to happen you're really kind of playing with objects and what's neat when i have it out and people see it you know at first they just walk by but then if they really come in and look at it you know then they're like oh hey this is nice so i could live here oh this is neat you know they get drawn in more and more and their mind's eye reads it as one thing but then when their eyes start seeing what's in there it uh turns them a bit you know and makes it makes them see it as Hey, maybe this is a viable living space. Maybe I could use it. It's so easy to be seduced by the romance of dumpster living. Um, do you ever have people who are sort of shocked to suddenly? I mean, I sort of having sort of an Oscar the Grouch moment or something where where they they're just they think they're walking past an ordinary dumpster, and then it turns out that there's this. Oh, uh, sure, life, yeah. sure. I mean, even you know, I got the doors open, I got the barbecue on the outside with some stuff grilling. People will just walk by. I mean, it's funny how the mind's eye just looks at this. You know, it doesn't. It just kind of glances it, and I think it reads, hey, here's a dumpster. Let's keep walking. We don't really need to look at it. Uh, they'll walk right by it, and I'll be in there, um, you know, grilling up dinner. And how about local law enforcement, zoning enforcement? Uh, what's your relationship right now with the man, as we say? Uh, try not to have one. Um, <laughs> actually, it's it's uh, it's parked in a, inside of a lot, so it's not on the street. I have been on the street, and I haven't had any problems with that, but that was only for, you know, like week-long stints. Um, and that's, that was in Oakland, and that was in some kind of industrial parts of Brooklyn here. Uh, you know, if you were in Manhattan, you can get a permit for a dumpster, but I think you better keep it a little low-pro because they don't want you living in it, per se, I would assume. But, you know, I haven't, I haven't had any problems, and the few times that the police or the fire department have come up, you know, they've been interested in it. They like the idea. They're inside. They think it's cool. They're snapping photos. Um, <laughs> so no hassle. I mean, I have 
uh, fire extinguisher in there. I have, you know, kind of all the necessary safety measures uh, with a regular home. But, um, no, I didn't get any permits or zoning or anything like that when I picked it. Uh, our number, by the way, as we go along here, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We're talking to Greg Klain right now. We can come back to the dumpster uh, in a second, but I want to talk about this other thing that you're doing and, and watching, uh, looking at, at photographs of this. This is really fascinating. You have been uh, working with, with debris, with uh, stuff that people have dumped, um, and and you have been building out of these kind of upcycled materials. Um Houses, or I don't know what the right word for this is, but living places anyway for uh, homeless people in the Bay Area. Tell us more about that. Well, I mean, that was a project that just kind of started um, from my studies in the homeless people themselves. I mean, I've always been interested in homes around me. There's a lot of homeless people. And, you know, I was noticing that, you know, they're not homeless. They do build structures. Uh, What they do is they take illegally dumped items part that I'm living in Oakland, uh, they do a lot of midnight dumping, it's called. So people who don't want to pay to bring all this stuff to the landfill will just dump it on the street at midnight. And then in the morning time, there's these piles of debris everywhere. And the homeless people themselves would take, you know, some pallets, mattresses, and whatnot, and kind of make a crude lean-to. Then I thought, hey, what if I grab these same materials, source all my materials from the street, bring it back to my studio, put it all together with screws and glue, uh, you know, make it sturdy and then put it on wheels and then uh, have the homeless people live in that. Because I noticed that the city, there's laws against uh, encroachment on, like, items and materials, but no laws against the homeless people. So the city would come in, look at the structure that a homeless person has made and say, hey, you're encroaching on the sidewalk or impeding street sweeping. Next Tuesday at 3 o'clock, we're going to come in. Anything left here, we're going to throw away. So, you know, a homeless person would drag whatever few items they want to save. The city would come in on Tuesday, 3 o'clock, clean all that stuff out, but leave the person on the street. So I thought if I made a home with wheels, the city said, hey, you got to move. They'll just push the home, uh, you know, down a couple of blocks, and they'll retain their own residence, uh, but just kind of be nomadic as they are and move their home around. So, you know, I've been making, I've made like 22 homes so far for the homeless, all out of illegally dumped garbage and industrial waste. Uh, the only thing I really have to buy is some screws, some nails, and uh, paintbrushes. I find a lot of paint on the street. I find a lot of pallets on the street. Old refrigerator shelves, which I use for windows um, and whatnot, and just kind of make these these fun shelters uh, and, and just give them to the homeless people. And I just want to say, having looked at pictures of them online, they are they're fun looking. They they look like sort of Japanese anime or something. They look like something in my neighbor yeah, Totoro. You know, that's for me. That's the fun part. I mean, I, I didn't set out to save the homeless or make homes for them. I like building things and I like experimenting with what I can build. And when I'm sourcing my materials from the street, each home is different. Each home is unique. The size is different. The shape, the materials. And for me, it's you know, it's more of kind of an art project challenge to myself of what I can make a home out of, how I can repurpose different materials, uh, you know, using coffee bags for shingles, um, you know, making walls out of doors, just kind of that thing. If I find a good material, even if I don't know how I'm going to use it, I'll bring it back to my studio anyway, maybe two, three days later, boom, an idea hits me and I'll, I'll use it in a different way. It, it also, I think, does sort of speak to the whole question of expectations, too. Uh, in other words, uh, people here in Connecticut, which is a pretty straight-laced, tightly-wrapped 
some might say hidebound environment, are thinking about this right. and thinking, no way, no way. In the Bay Area, obviously, first of all, there is in the Bay Area an enormous uh, problem uh, um, with homeless people for homeless people. Uh, and so we're not really talking about people who are living conventionally going into one of these funky structures that you're making. We're talking about people who were formerly homeless going. I mean, it's a step up, really. So yes. that may be yes. one of the reasons the authorities are, are a little bit cooler about it. I think, I think, I mean, they're already there. They're already building structures. Uh, the people that I give it to, have, you know, I've known them and they've been on the streets for 10, 15 years uh, living, um, you know, living in structures that they have made out of this illegally dumped garbage. And it works for a bit, but you get a big windstorm or rain or something like that, and then it's all kind of a big soggy mess. And sometimes they abandon it and go make something else, you know, leaving the city to clean this stuff up and the city to clean this illegally dumped garbage up. And it's like, well, hey, you know, you give me $30, I can make a home for someone. And a home that's nomadic. So not only are they just on, on this street corner the whole time, you know, they'll be there for two weeks, and then they can push it around and be someone else, somewhere else for two weeks and just kind of, you know, move around so everyone in the community kind of shares, I don't know the burden, but shares, uh, you know, the homeless people in front of their place. A lot of business owners don't like the homeless people there because they're kind of commuting in. They don't have much sympathy. Mm-hmm. For these people, it's just kind of, oh, this guy's in front of my business, thinking it up, making it look bad. Why can't you just move, get out, you know, get out of my life? So, you know, with the wheels, I mean, almost people are nomadic. So I wanted to make the structures that they live in nomadic as well. It's very cool. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll talk more about this. We've got uh, another guest to add to the conversation with Greg Klain. We'll come back after this. Today's show was produced by Itsy Bitsy Kaplan and me, Kion Weensy. Our interns are Allison Nanoscale and Britt Lilliputian. Greg Littlebitty appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tiny Tim. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff showing everybody their teeny tiny little bitsy itsy witsy spatulas, visit our website, WNPR.org. Tomorrow, I can't tell you about the show unless you type in your password. And now... Back to Colin. We do have a show tomorrow about passwords. As you probably know, there's uh, a possible password crisis uh, here because of uh, recent hacking activity. But it sort of got us thinking about passwords, and there's there are many little corridors that we will go down as we talk about passwords. There are not many little corridors in uh, the tiny houses that we're talking about right now. They tend to be uh, pretty straightforward spaces. Um, and uh, we've been talking to Greg Klain. Uh, he's been uh, he's actually uh, turned a, a dumpster uh, into a somewhat comfortable uh, house, and he's also worked with uh, illegally dumped materials to build homes for homeless people uh, in the Bay Area. Um, let's go over to Travis Price here, add him to the conversation. We've got to talk about one more thing. We began the con- we began the day talking about these tiny houses that are often made from architectural designs and, and using uh, natural materials and beautiful wood and things like that. But there's lots of other uh, materials that we can use, as Greg has proved. And so, um, Travis, what you've been working with are shipping containers. Those are, of course, the great big huge things that you see in the movies like Captain Phillips, and they're the things 
things that poke punch a hole in Robert Redford's boat uh, in All is Lost, uh, but they are uh, very much more than that. We did a, actually a show with the author of a book called 90% of Everything, uh, which is premised on the fact that 90% of everything that we get and use probably came here in one of these enormous shipping t- containers on one of these huge boats. But you're actually using them as spaces for people to live in. Tell us more about that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, It's a a good segue because there are over 700,000 of these empty sea containers sitting in America now fallow, largely because we're shipping nothing out. And it's actually cheaper to build a new one in China and ship it over. So we've taken eight foot by nine foot six high by 40 foot sea containers, 18 of them, and repurposed them completely right in the middle of Washington, D.C., right on a metro stop in a very dense area by Catholic University. And we've stacked them up, had them cut out uh, to fit uh, what we call four layers or four apartments. In each apartment is a group housing uh, scenario with six bedrooms with each having their own little bathroom and a shared kitchen dining living. Now, this obviously is perfect for student group housing. But the the aesthetics are amazing because I always tell people – uh, they're paying a pretty penny these days to actually be in metal, steel, glass, cool buildings from Vancouver to London to you name it, Rio. And here we are suddenly stacking up this extraordinary piece of uh, a human genius to actually create a sea container um, and uh, cutting out beautiful windows, balconies, and lining the entire thing in, in um, off-the-shelf plywood from Home Depot uh, cleaning it all up and having, I would consider, really handsome but really, really low-cost and fastly available uh, apartment housing. Now, obviously, American bureaucracy is usually in the business of saying no. And I assume one reason that Washington, D.C. isn't saying no to you is is that this is an experiment. And because Washington, D.C. basically needs more living space than it has right now, they need somebody to innovate and build fast. Yes, that's true. And, and uh, news to say, this is the crown jewel of saying no, <laughs> Washington, after all. And uh, we've got a resounding yes. I can't get over uh, the fact that we went right through the building departments, no exceptions. We just met all the codes. And suddenly, uh, yes, millennial housing, housing for students, housing for um, a number of people who who want to think small and think small in budget as well and think fast is is absolutely critical. I think we're bringing our finished cost per unit in half, 60% less than conventional housing construction and probably in 60% less time. Um, and uh, And also suddenly every building department guy is coming over not to tell us no, 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 but they're just enthralled with this. So uh, it's it's a big breakthrough, I think, to do something like that right in the in the nation's capital. Uh, I'm going to try to cover a couple of things really quickly in, in a small sure. amount of time. But so I want to swing over to Greg Klain for just a quick second. You're you're you've worked with ship, shipping containers too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've built a few. Actually, that's what I'm doing in New York here. I'm making a venue. I got five shipping containers, uh, a bar, a restaurant, a little recording studio, and a little rooftop deck. Cool. Uh, is what I'm making with them. And, yeah, there's are great building blocks. I mean, you can think of them as Legos, and they do come together quickly. Um, you know, a couple drawbacks, the flat roofs, uh, you know, the water leakage when you cut windows out, depending how many walls you blow out, the resupporting. But, um, you know, it is quick. 
it is cheap. It's something you could build in a factory off-site in a more controlled environment, so you're not working in the winter, in the rain, and whatever else. You could be inside a building, prefab it up, bring it to the site, crane it up, weld them together, and you have a quick, sturdy structure. So, uh, Travis Price, you have another dream, which you described as sort of Sausalito meets Holland meets meets, uh, District of Columbia. Tell us uh, about this. Yeah, two conversations came up, one with a very large developer who has some waterfront which is very rare in D.C., um, about actually taking, instead of foundations for the four corners, um, putting it on barges and having a floating town of two or 300 sea container dwellings. Um, uh, Probably the best one yet was talking to a local church down in Georgetown who have, uh, I think, heard earlier, have to deal with homeless. And you want homeless people to feel comfortable in the neighborhoods they're in. It's just suddenly, where do they go at night? How do they sort of go home for some warmth, food, and, and attention. And I just floated the idea of literally floating a small sea container village off the shores of Georgetown at night. People could board, get cleaned, have food, and in the day be in their favorite local spot without getting into all these neighborhood brawls about who's going to put up who where. So uh, the dreams get bigger, too. We can actually start to put steel frames up, and you can have your shipping container home here, and if I move to Cleveland or to San Francisco, I can just simply unplug my container from the high-rise, lower it down, ship it, and be back in my home within a month, the same home I left in the yeah. over- other city. No, actually, I have one of Greg's dumpsters in Cleveland that I live in, Then I have a country <laughs> tiny house in Sebastopol, California. So, I mean, very quickly, I'm running out of time here, but um, do you sense, I mean, it's one thing to do the thing that you're doing right now, which is on dry land. Do you sense a similar willingness to experiment or at least to entertain these ideas, whether it's for homeless people uh, on a, a floating uh, carnival or, or this kind of Sausalito by the nation's capital? I think I think the big shift is we've all known that this stuff has worked for since the 70s, 60s. The shift is there's suddenly all these containers, and there's a culture shift. People are now looking at steel, glass, corrugation, all these things like Indwell and other magazines. I mean, this has become the new norm, much like IKEA has for a lot of folks. So it's really environmentally sound. It's very reasonable. It's 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 really the first car off the roadway. And I think you're going to, with that culture shift and the numbers, there's just really no reason to turn away from it. These things were built to last at sea, 10 stories high in five gale winds. There's no way they're going anywhere if they're sitting on land. We're just, I think we're just going to learn. We've learned to enjoy the aesthetic of it all. And that's the big game shifter right now. Travis Price, thanks so much for talking to us. You can email me at Colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org. find our way back home. Greg, thanks for inviting me to your shipping container house. This is so cool. Hey, thanks for coming. Next up, Manchester. Oh, sweet. I was going to go shopping at Buckland. No, Manchester, England. Oh. 